Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Hello, bosses. Welcome to episode 92 of the show. And we're carrying on with our standard rotation. We worked it, it was a rotation last episode. And it's a speech breakdown. We're going to have a look at a talk and we're going to have a chat about what works and what we think doesn't work about it. This is going to be a little bit meta today. This is a talk I found in the TED Talks Daily podcast and it talks about techniques in persuasive presentations. So we're going to like analyze a talk that's talking about presentations. So you'll learn heaps today about being persuasive and also like analyzing talks. So I'm assuming that the measure of whether this talk is correct is how persuaded I am by the talk in the end. Is that correct? Oh, um, <laughs> I think that's another level we don't getting, need. <laughs> I'm getting way too complex here, aren't I? <laughs> We've said it before and we'll say it again. One of the best ways to become a better presenter is to watch talks and think about what is going on with that presenter. The things you like, the things you don't like. And so we're going to play a talk. We'll pause it and we'll make comment and it should be good fun. I'm sure I recommended this one to you, Kate. Have you watched it? No, I have not. I think you did send me the link and I did not click on it. Classic. So then what are we watching? <laughs> okay, today we're listening to a psychologist, Nero Sivanathan, and this was at TEDx in London 2019 with The Counterintuitive Way to Be More Persuasive. Are you ready? I'm ready. Imagine you're on a shopping trip. You've been looking for a luxury line of dinnerware set to add to your kitchen collection. As it turns out, your local department store has announced a sale on the very set you've been looking for. So you rush to the store to find a 24-piece set on sale. Eight dinner plates, all in good condition, eight soup and salad bowls, all in good condition, and eight dessert plates, all in good condition. Now consider for a moment how much you would be willing to pay for this dinnerware set. Now imagine an alternate scenario Not having seen this 24-piece luxury set, you rush to the store to find a 40-piece dinnerware set on sale. Eight dinner plates, all in good condition. Eight soup and salad bowls, all in good condition. Eight dessert plates, all in good condition. Eight cups, two of them are broken. Eight saucers, seven of them are broken. Now consider for a moment how much you would be willing to pay for this 40-piece dinnerware set. You may be having a similar experience to what I did when I first listened to this talk. I listened to it, I didn't see it, and there was a lot of numbers there about how many bits of the dinnerware set were included. And I was trying to track it in my brain, and maybe, if you're anything like me, that was really hard to do. And I sort of had to mentally just be like, ugh, forget the exact numbers, we'll just listen to the talk. But watching it, there is a PowerPoint slide that has a nice little diagram and labels how many are there. And the visual here just makes the comprehension possible. I'm really convinced the visuals are needed here. Watching it makes more sense than listening to it. You you will learn that the the numbers don't quite matter here. And you've only listened to this. You haven't actually watched the the, uh, video. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm loving this opening because I love an opening, a story that I can immediately relate to and not have to think too hard. And honestly, shopping for homewares is something that I don't have to think too hard about. I really like it so far. It's nice to use a story, use a hypothetical, an example, right? Talk to me straight away. Now consider for a moment how much you would be willing to pay for this 40-piece dinnerware set. This is the premise 
of a clever experiment by Christopher C. from the University of Chicago. It's also the question that I've asked hundreds of students in my classroom. What were their responses? On average, when afforded the 24-piece luxury set, they were willing to spend 390 pounds for the set. When afforded the 40-piece dinnerware set, on average, they were willing to spend a whopping 192 pounds for this dinnerware set. Strictly speaking, these are an irrational set of numbers. You'll notice the 40-piece dinnerware set includes all elements you would get in the 24-piece set, plus six cups and one saucer. And not only are you not willing to spend what you will for the 24-piece set, you're only willing to spend roughly half of what you will for that 24-piece set. What you're witnessing here is what's referred to as the dilution effect. Okay, I don't know if this is going to go in, but to me this makes perfect sense. This is not like counterintuitive to me so far because my immediate thought is like, well, now I have to go and buy an extra cup or whatever, and I have to go and buy seven other plates or whatever that was that were broken. So overall, I'm probably going to end up paying more because individually pieces are more expensive. And of course that makes perfect sense. You can tell I'm a single male because I'm like, I just buy a two-piece dinner. <laughs> you know what I do like about how he's presented this was he gave us the example and he gave us the explanation. And then he said, what you're seeing here is a perfect example of the dilution effect. I think the other way of doing this, which is today I'm going to talk to you about the dilution effect. It can look something like this. And we have the example. The idea of just getting started with the story, with the example that grabs you. And that's just sort of a bit interesting. And the learning, the understanding of what the psychological effect is, is just sort of hidden in there. There's a bit of like sneaky learning rather than opening with psychological effect and then having to explain it and try and build interest from there. I think it's just a clever way that he's gone about it. Well, I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, we're all always talking about trying to gain and capture that attention immediately. Mm. So this makes perfect sense, this story before the theory referred to as the dilution effect. The broken items, if you will, dilute our overall perceived value of that entire set. Turns out this cognitive quirk at the checkout counter has important implications for our ability to be heard and listened to when we speak up. Whether you are speaking up against a failing strategy, speaking against the grain of a shared opinion among friends, or speaking truth to power, this takes courage. Often, the points that are raised are both legitimate, but also shared by others. But sadly, and far too often, we see people speak up, but fail to influence others in the way that they had hoped for. Put another way, their message was sound, but their delivery proved faulty. You know what I'm really liking about this talk is the pace of delivery. He's very measured and controlled in his delivery. That's something I think to listen out for. And when he gets to uh, his key sentences, he had one just before, but this one just now, which is the message is sound, but the delivery has proved faulty. He really slowed down for those key messages. Again, it just draws emphasis to those key phrases. What I quite like that he's done here, it's not hugely dissimilar to what you just said, I think, um, but he's kind of expanding on his theory, on his 
work or whatever it is, expanding that out, but then really tightening that up into that one sentence. So it works for two different people. If you like a lot of detail, like you'd like the more lengthy explanations often, and I like the shorter snippy soundbite better. So it's kind of, I feel like it's catering to quite a wide range of people. But their delivery proved faulty. If we could understand this cognitive bias, it holds important implications for how we could craft and mold our messages to have the impact we all desire, to be more influential as a communicator. Let's exit the aisles of the shopping center and enter a context in which we practice almost automatically every day, the judgment of others. Let me introduce you to two individuals. Tim studies 31 hours a week outside of class. Tom, like Tim, also spends 31 hours outside of class studying. He has a brother and two sisters. He visits his grandparents. He once went on a blind date, plays pool every two months. When participants are asked to evaluate the cognitive aptitude of these individuals, or more importantly, their scholastic achievement, on average, people rate Tim to have a significantly higher GPA than that of Tom. But why? All right, again with the visuals, I listened to this and I forgot which one was Tim and which one was Tom. The names are too similar. I didn't quite separate them, but there's a nice visual. Tim and his... Single attribute. Yeah, and Tom with the, the list with his brothers, sisters, grandparents. I can see it. Oh, man, just made that so much easier. I apologize listening to it. I had the exact same reaction at the time, which was, which one was which? Eh, but he does kind of explain it there. But why? After all, both of them spend 31 hours a week outside of class. Turns out, in these contexts, when we're presented such information, our minds utilize two categories of information, diagnostic and non-diagnostic. Diagnostic information is information of relevance to the evaluation that is being made. Non-diagnostic is information that is irrelevant or inconsequential to that valuation. And when both categories of information are mixed, dilution occurs. The very fact that Tom has a brother and two sisters or plays pool every two months dilutes the diagnostic information, or more importantly, dilutes the value and weight of that diagnostic information, namely that he studies 31 hours a week outside of class. The most robust psychological explanation for this is one of averaging. In this model, we take in information and those information are afforded a weighted score. And our minds do not add those pieces of information, but rather averages those pieces of information. So when you introduce irrelevant or even weak arguments, those weak arguments, if you will, reduce the weight of your overall argument. A few years ago, I landed in Philadelphia one August evening for a conference. You made a really strong point there about the weight of arguments and instead of adding them that we average them, which I quite liked. I, I'm following a thought that's making a lot of sense towards the, the message of this of this talk. And then he's launched into this story, which I like how he started the story. It was just a time and a place in an airport in that certain year. 
I think, though, I would have liked a longer pause after that block of information before we go into the story. Just a moment to sort of process those last couple of key words, that last sort of sentence or two, before moving into the time and place of a story. Just a, just a longer pause there. A few years ago, I landed in Philadelphia one August evening for a conference. Having just gotten off a transatlantic flight, I checked into my hotel room, put my feet up, and decided to distract my jet lag with some TV. An ad caught my attention. The ad was an ad for a pharmaceutical drug. Now, if you're the select few who've not had the pleasure of witnessing these ads, the typical architecture of these ads is you might see a happy couple prancing through their garden, reveling in the joy that they got a full night's sleep with the aid of this sleep drug. Because of FDA regulations, the last few seconds of this one-minute ad needs to be devoted to the side effects of that drug. And what you'll typically hear is a hurried voiceover that blurts out, side effects include heart attack, stroke, blah, 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 blah. I love the personalization of this example. I think it would have been really easy to go into this and say, hey, you know pharmaceutical ads, how you always see a happy couple and the last few seconds is the, list, is the voiceover with all the side effects. But instead we got the little bit of narrative there. He was on a flight and he was trying to kill his jet lag. The happy couple were prancing around. Why? Because they got a full night's sleep thanks to the medication. I just love the specificity there to create a visual in the mind of the audience. It just moves it away from stream of information. It gives the information context, yeah. Yeah, and I think it just makes the talk just more interesting and enjoyable than... Hmm, that's true. I didn't recognise that. That's like information within a story, whereas the information alone would have worked, but not as well. Huh. Side effects include heart attack, stroke, blah, 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 and will end with something like itchy feet. Guess what itchy feet does to people's risk assessment of heart attack and stroke? It dilutes it. Imagine for a moment an alternate commercial that says, this drug cures your sleep problems, side effects are heart attack and stroke. Stop. Now all of a sudden you're thinking, I don't mind staying up all night. Turns out, going to sleep is important, but so is waking up. <laughs> Sometimes we get asked, where do you put humour in a presentation? I think this is a prime example. We've kind of landed in a little bit of a, little bit of a dark place. We're talking about medication that might cause death. Like, that's a bit of a dark place. And the, but the fact he's put the slight uh, couple of laugh lines in there, one, he gets a good reaction from the audience really lightens the mood, it breaks the tension. I think I think it signals to the audience that, yeah, while we've mentioned heart attack and stroke, I as the presenter know what I'm doing, we can have we can relax here a little bit. It signifies that we're not going into a dark place. Yeah. I think well placed humour there to just break that bit of tension that had built up. Mm. But so is waking up. Let me give you a sample of from our research. So this ad that I witnessed essentially triggered a research project with my PhD student, Hamont over the next two years. And in one of these studies, we presented participants... 
What was very interesting there is we said before that he was like putting this information within a story for context, but that story actually has now looped back around and become very integral to the entire point of his story. Yeah, him seeing the ad in that airport is what triggered the research. It all just, oh, that ties together so nicely, doesn't it? I almost want to take back what we said before, but I'm not convinced. I think it's still... I think it still is stands. a good technique, yeah. I think it still stands, even if it wasn't integral, if it was just adding a little bit of colour to the information, I think it still works. But the fact that it, like, he split that story up and it started with it and introduced that colour to the information, ah, yeah, good. And in one of these studies, we presented participants an actual print ad that appeared in a magazine. You'll notice the last line is devoted to the side effects of this drug. For half of the participants, we showed the ad in its entirety, which included both major side effects as well as minor side effects. <coughs> to the other half of the participants, we showed the same ad with one small modification. We extracted just four words out of the sea of text. Specifically, we extracted the minor side effects. And then both participants, or both sets of participants, rated that drug. What we find is that individuals who were exposed to both the major side effects as well as the minor side effects rated the drug's overall severity to be significantly lower than those who were only exposed to the major side effects. Furthermore, they also showed greater attraction towards consuming this drug. In a follow-up study, we even find that individuals are willing to pay more to buy the drug which they were exposed to that had both major side effects as well as minor side effects compared to just major side effects alone. So it turns out pharmaceutical ads, by listing both major side effects as well as minor side effects, paradoxically dilute participants and potential consumers' overall risk assessment of that drug. Going beyond shopping expeditions, going beyond the evaluation of the scholastic aptitude of others, and beyond sort of evaluating risk in our environment, what this body of research tells us is that in the world of communicating for the purposes of influence, quality trumps quantity. By increasing the number of arguments, you do not strengthen your case, but rather you actively weaken it. Put another way, you cannot increase the quality of an argument by simply increasing the quantity of your argument. The next time you want to speak up in a meeting, speak in favor of a government le legislation that you're deeply passionate about, or simply want to help a friend see the world through a different lens. It is important to note that the delivery of your message is every bit as important as its content. Stick to your strong arguments, because your arguments don't add up in the minds of the receiver, they average out. Thank you. All right, there it is, Kate, the counterintuitive way to be more persuasive. Although I do like to play on words, for some reason on YouTube it's listed as what if your arguments don't add up, which is like a nice play on that. He was talking about the difference between arguments adding and averaging. Look, either way, I think that's, um, that was an interesting talk. How did you feel about it? Um, okay, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Oh, okay, we're rating them just on a numeric scale now. 
That said, I've decided, you know, like 30 plus breakdowns, I'm going to start giving it a rating system. Wow. <laughs> um, no, I, I liked it because I guess this is content that I'm somewhat interested in, but there was a major problem that I saw with this and that was the use of quite complex language. I would have liked the language to be simplified because there was, it felt like it took so much of my mental energy to stay focused and to like stay processing this entire thing. And it was only a 10 minute talk and it still took a lot of energy to process and like sit there and try and understand. And because I'm doing this for this podcast, I will do that. But if I was listening to this like in the car or just for in air quotes enjoyment, I think I would have drifted off. I don't think that I would have had the mental stamina to really process it properly. Um, for example, there were a couple yeah, of words. Say, I was going to say, because I didn't really pick up the uh, complex language. So I'm interested where where you saw that. Well, two things there. Like your vocabulary is better than mine in general. You process that stuff faster than me. So a couple of things that, for example, I picked up. He was talking about individuals that were exposed to this sort of language. Oh, the, the major and the minor side effects. Yeah. Instead, he could have just said people that read this rather than individuals that were exposed to. It just takes that slight bit more mental effort. And when that's consistent through the whole thing, it's taxing. I found it quite draining. Um, there was another thing that he, I, I scribbled down. It doesn't matter about their scholastic aptitudes. Scholastic aptitudes. Scholast- oh. I didn't know what it meant. And then I was trying to understand. I was trying to work out with the context what it meant. And I couldn't. And then I missed a few sentences. And then I was lost for about 30 seconds before I could catch back up. I didn't have issue with those particular words, but I can totally understand how you would. I guess I sort of look at this now and go, who who is speaking and who is he speaking to? So we know that Nero Savanathan is an organizational psychologist. Psychologist says to me, somebody who deals with research and the sciences, and they probably deal with huge words all day, every day. And the event was presented at a business school, which again makes me think, who who might be in the audience? Maybe this type of language is appropriate to them. At the event, could be completely appropriate on the internet to a general audience. It can be dangerous to use words that are above and beyond maybe people slightly outside the field. Yeah, I mean, it's LBS. It's London Business School. They're one of the top business schools in the world. And I totally agree with that. And I'll be honest, like, that's uncomfortable for me to say. And I feel like I'm not, like, I'm of average intelligence, average (laughs) vocabulary, And everything that I know about communication, everything that I learn about, and when I continue to research communication, because obviously that's the field that we're in, everything, no matter what level you are at, at an organization, whether you're at London Business School or whether you're sitting in a home office in Brisbane, you need to speak using language that is accessible for a majority of people and maybe the average person. And I say this, like, I've got a friend who has been to London Business School. He did his MBA there. And he has a high-level job. And I know that this is not how he speaks. I'm not convinced that, you know, of the argument that everyone who goes to LBS will understand this language. I'm just not convinced by that. So while I do definitely understand the argument about having to speak for your audience, I mean, I preach the argument of having to speak to your audience. audience, I also think that it's dangerous and a bit assumptive to use words that are bigger and more complex than necessary. In stark contrast to all that, you know what I really loved about this talk? And that was the simplicity of the message. The message I got from this was it is the quality, not the quantity of your arguments that makes a difference. 
Isn't that interesting? I've sort of talked about the complexity of the language, but I totally agree the simplicity of the message. Yeah, okay, so there's a couple of couple of complex words in there, but I think overall the delivery, and you had those three beautiful examples that explained it in very different contexts. And as you said at the start, Kate, did he persuade you that the, the method he uses would be more persuasive? Whatever that meta level was we got to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think no, because he started by saying that people in meetings need to speak up and have a stronger argument. But then the example that he gave was something that was too far removed. It was about drugs and heart attack and stroke, whereas I didn't get something that I felt was applicable that could be applied to a standard meeting. I would have liked a closer analogy. Oh, I thought that analogy was brilliant because there was the one about the drugs and the side effects. There was one about Tim and Tom and their uh, their study hours per week. And the dinner sets, I thought those three examples were varied in their context and I can totally see them as an analogy for more generally communication around persuasive arguments. Interesting because I thought that those three arguments definitely lined up. The dinner set, the Tim Tom and then the (laughs) the drugs one. I thought those three definitely lined up. I struggled to see how that would be applied in a meeting setting. Yeah because I think yeah I don't struggle with that because I think it carried the message of quality over quantity and I think in any communication if you've got persuasion that you want to do you've got a number of arguments find the strongest one and present that well rather than presenting those that may be slightly weaker arguments I, I can totally see the general nature of the message delivered in a specific set of contexts yeah fair enough yeah I think so and like I said I didn't hate it at all I think there's just something about it that's just not clicking with me today all right. The other question we always ask is, did you see anything of note? I mean, we talked about, I think, the PowerPoint really helped with the context and helped with oh, the yeah. understanding of some of those examples. Like I said, I listened to it the first time and uh, sort of didn't quite follow, but also recognized that probably wasn't important to understand those numbers. Watching it, though, really, those slides are needed and they're beautifully designed. But, but was there anything else that you saw, Kate? Um, Do you know what? And I'm going to harp on about it again, but I feel like most of my mental energy was going into like interpreting what he was saying and I didn't notice how he presented, which is also not a bad thing because it probably means that he was doing nothing glaringly obvious, glaringly distracting. Yeah, I agree. It was a pretty straightforward, in a very good way, unremarkable physical delivery. There was one thing that distracted me, and on his left wrist, he has a watch that has about three different faces on it. It's like quite a chunky watch, and it caught my (laughs) eye a few times. I thought, dude, just lose the watch, or have a simple watch. That was like the only tiny thing, but otherwise, like, he is dressed beautifully, has nice hand gestures, his facial expressions and his eye contact with the audience, it all just works. It was quite a unremarkable delivery, which is always a compliment. Yeah. Well, normally at this time, Kate, I say overall, what did you think about it? But I think we said that. Six out of (laughs) ten. I really loved it. I loved not just the design of this talk, like I had the three examples, we had some beautiful storytelling, but also the message there around persuasive communication. I mean, of course, that's going to speak to me. So I I really liked this talk. And I mean, I, I never sort of was put off by the language use. But I can, I can totally understand it from a second perspective, right? So this might be a sort of a new bit of a favourite for me. Your vocabulary is ridiculous, though. 
I feel like I'm an average person with my vocabulary and you're an above average person with your vocabulary. Oh, hear that, folks? Kate called me above average. Woohoo! <laughs> All right, that was, that was Nero Savanathan with The Counterintuitive Way to Be More Persuasive. So hopefully you've learned something from the talk, you've learned something from our breakdown. And I think that will do us. There's a link down below if you want to go watch it as well. And as always, I recommend that you do get the sort of full uh, audio-visual experience. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in your ears next week with a guest. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes, and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, Flick us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week.